This morning is taken from 1 Corinthians 18 to 25. Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly of what we preach to those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks demand seek wisdom. But we preach, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, like they said, my name is Bill Cliff. Um, this will be my third time actually preaching here. Um, way before COVID, I came with a family. At that time, I had two, Griffin and Gavin, and my wife Melody was here. Um, last time I came, I believe it was just myself. That was a little bit less than two years ago. Um, I came and got to preach here. It was a good experience doing that. Um, and since that time, we, like I said, we had one other little one. And so thinking about that, I had went from two boys. We had a we have an SUV in the back. We had a second row, and so it was perfect, perfect for the two boys. Then we had our little guy, Grayson, and it was fine for a little while. You know, two kind of small guys, all in car seats. And now we started, the, a couple months ago, we started, like, doing a booster seat. Now the second one wants a booster seat just because he, the older one has it. And so we got to the point where we just weren't fitting in our SUV anymore. Our Mazda CX-5 wasn't doing the trick. So we knew we needed to upgrade to a third row. Um, and so about a, two weeks ago, Melody and I were talking, we're like, it's time to start the search. Let's get this rolling. And so I did all the research I could. We loved the way our Mazda felt so much that we just got the next upgrade up, went from the CX-5 to the CX-9. So we started looking for it. I found some good prices. I kind of got a ballpark of what the range should be. Has anyone ever done that before? Like did all the research for the car and you kind of find a range what you're comfortable with? That's what we did. We wanted a two-year-old car with, you know, 30,000 miles or under for a certain price. And so I came in there very confident in my abilities. I walked in there, I was like, I know exactly what I want. I'm tough. So I walked in there to the Mazda dealership. I told them what I wanted. Um, I said, we're not gonna have that. I was like, oh, okay. A little bit more money than I thought. So I said, how about we, um, I went home. We, well, we test drove it, liked it, kind of fell in love with it, liked what we had. Went home, I said, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna ask them for a number, let's say just for sake of argument, I'm gonna ask them for $1,000 off. Um, so I walked in there, told them what I wanted, and their answer was no. I was like, oh, okay. This is a little tougher than it was about seven, six years ago. Cars are, it's a different ball, ball game now. So I went in there, did all the research, and they were pretty matter of fact. It wasn't what I, they weren't just trying to like rip me off. They're saying that's not a range we're gonna get to. 
So I, in my mind, I said, okay, so if they give me a little bit off, I'm going to go for it. So they gave me $200 off the price I asked for. I was like, deal. <laughs> Let's do it. I'll get them later with, the, with my trade-in. So I went there with my Ford Focus that I bought brand new off the lot in Pottstown. I drove it off there with zero miles on it. And as of a couple days ago, I had 203 miles, 1,000 miles on it. So I drove it a lot. So I walked in there. I'm like, I'm going to ask for a certain number for this car. I went there and said, I want $1,500 for this car um, with 203,000 miles on it. I walked in there, and they looked at it, um, and they came back and said, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, it was, first of all, I had 203,000 miles on it. They were persuasive, 203,000 miles, had coffee stains all over the ceiling. I don't even remember that, but the boys did it at some point. So we had all kinds of things going on with it. And so I went for it. Again, I was like, okay, deal, we got it. I, they gave me a little bit of money for it, and I took it. And so I felt pretty good of myself. They let me save face by giving me a little off the car, giving me a little bit for my car. So I felt like I was, I didn't get exactly what I wanted for my research, but I did okay. And then I got, to, I don't know if anyone remembers this, when you get a car, it's the warranty conversation. Has anyone ever had the extended warranty conversation? Okay. I walked in there, though, very tough. I was like, there's no way he's going to get me to budge on this. I, we have the price. We have the car. We settled on everything. He was so persuasive, guys. So persuasive. I mean, he had a lot. I mean, and it was good stuff. I mean, things that we need, like the upholstery of my car, the nice wax on the outside. If anything breaks, they're going to fix it for you. But I went in there with the price, and I tried to hold my ground. And, then, and by the end of the conversation, and his a very great man who had a, was giving me some great deals, I sat down and I said, that's a really good deal. Let me call my wife. And so I called Melody, and she talked me, she talked me off the ledge. I was able to like stand strong and say, I couldn't tell him no. I said, can I call you back later? And so I was able to let him know that I can't do it now. But just the persuasiveness, his the persuasiveness and words that he used, and he just understood my situation. He kind of, I think, understood where I was coming from. I think he figured out that I wasn't as tough as I thought I was, walking into the conversation. And he said the right things, and he was able, to, he was able to use what he knew about me and what he could offer me to give me a really good deal. Good thing I had my wife to help me with it, but it was persuasive. It was very persuasive, and his words were, most of it was true. The only untrue thing about it was I said at the beginning, I didn't want to do it. Um, and he almost had me right where he wanted me to be. Thank you, Melody, for helping me through that. I appreciate it. Um, this morning in, in the passage we're in, um, thinking about the passage, in the city of Corinth and the Roman influence that Rome had on Corinth, um, we are in a situation where people celebrated persuasiveness. Someone's ability to be able to persuade someone and get an answer that they wanted, being able to... I'm not going to say even manipulate. Take, a, take an audience, give the, the orator could go up there and present his material and have everybody starting in one spot but believing something else when they left. And that is the world that we find the Corinthian people living in. So thinking about the passage that was just read a couple minutes ago, the city of Corinth shared some or many similarities with our culture today, probably with most cultures around the world, in fact, in that it celebrated power and success and ability to persuade. They were full of human wisdom, accomplishments, and self-sufficiency. Who doesn't want to be successful, right? Who doesn't want to have the ability to have power and strength to persuade others? Because power and success can be good in many circumstances, leading to human flourishing and the betterment of those in our communities. 
These can be good things. However, in other circumstances, it can lead to pride and destruction. And this is the culture where, where the church was situated when Paul was issuing these, this talk. I think it isn't the culture of the city, but more so the actually Christians in Corinth who were seeking to live out the Christian faith in their own wisdom. In their own wisdom. They were being molded into the image of the Corinthian church and its values instead of influencing and developing the culture towards Christ. Hint, that's the same exact issue that we're coming up against in our world, right? We're not that different than the Corinthian believers. They've received their salvation by humbly coming to the Lord, but now they're living under the authority of their own wisdom and the wisdom that the culture is telling them is good and true. They're letting the culture define what things should look like. That's where we have Paul. Paul, the very blunt Paul, realized that both the hearts of the people and the effectiveness of the, of the church was at stake in the situation here. These Christians in Corinth would need to look past the draw of power and instead look to the humility found in Jesus who willingly humbled himself on the cross, which looked very different from what they were thinking about. The solution was a greater understanding of the message of the cross. And these people, these Corinthian believers and we, need a bold reminder of what the power actually was. They needed, as we need, a reminder that the message of the cross leads us to humbly follow Jesus' countercultural ways in loving the world around us and following him. So let's jump into our passage this morning. Let's look at verse 18 on its own. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So I'm, I like to look at a big idea. What is the author saying in this section? So I like to form for myself a big idea of what Paul is trying to communicate. And one that I see running throughout this passage is, at first glance, the wisdom of the world may seem to lead towards everything that you want, but in, in the end, it leads to frustration, discontentment, and death. On the other hand, the wisdom of God on the cross, however, may appear foolish, but it actually is the saving power of God in Christ that leads to real life. And let's, let's kind of look at how Paul's going to unpack this message here, starting in verse 18. So we see here that Paul was confronting the Corinthian church because they were uncritically accepting the values and practices of the Corinthian culture around them. That makes sense, right? They're uncritically accepting it, meaning they were just in it. They were fish in the fishbowl. I'm sure many of those people couldn't even recognize how the outside culture was actually infiltrating the church culture in them, and they didn't even see it. Um, that's hard to do, right? When we're fish in the fishbowl, we really don't know that we're fish in the fishbowl. And so that's why the beautiful thing is that God gave us human beings' minds to critically think through things. So we're able to use our minds that we have to critically look at the values and things of our culture and look and sift it through the values of God's word and say, is this true? Is this right? Is this what the Lord would have for us? And the problem was that the, Corinthian, the Corinthians might have valued their intellect and power, but they weren't valuing their ability to critically think through the culture and how it was affecting them around them. Paul wants to remind them that the most important value that came was from Jesus on the cross. It seemed so countercultural to everything they were hearing. Most people in that culture saw Jesus' death, especially being crucified, as humiliating, which it was, which did not line up with the ideal of power that the Romans and Corinthians held so very high. The cross looked like defeat to them, 
It's like Christ was defeated, it looked like, to the outside world. The words power, control, and influence made sense to these people. Willingly dying on the cross looked like weakness, and it made no sense to them at all. This is the culture that's affecting the Christians, that is. That people's perception did not change Paul's message in any way at all. Paul's message was he was not going to allow them to water anything down by that, that culture around them. Notice here that Paul, you might think that he's going to come and talk about the resurrection and the, and the defeat that, Satan, that the God had over death, but not yet. That's not what he wants to say yet. Notice here that Paul did not say the message of the resurrection as if it might balance out our opinion or something, right? Even though the resurrection is vital to fully understanding our salvation in Christ, he is going to focus on the death, not only just the death, but death on a cross by crucifixion. He's purposefully talking about Jesus' brutal and humiliating death on the cross. He's bringing this seemingly weak act to the front of the conversation, and Paul's not scared to do it. Paul's not going to just use the wisdom of the culture to try to weaken the argument. He's going right, he's going right for it. He's going to talk about the cross. David Garland in the Pillar Commentary said this, Paul did not sweep the crucifixion under the carpet as an unfortunate episode remedied by the glories of the, re the resurrection. He does not say that he preached the resurrected Christ, but the crucified Christ. Crucifixion and resurrection belong together as part of the gospel story, but the cross was repugnant to ancient sensibilities and assailed the world's self-centeredness and self-destructive ways. That's, that's powerful. People must have thought, surely Jesus was not aware of the negative perception that his death on a Roman cross would bring him and his people, right? Like, he must have just not thought through this all the way, he, thinking how bad this would look for us. This was not good PR for Jesus or the church in any way. The cross was foolishness to these people, to the culture around them, whom Paul refers to as perishing, and elsewhere Paul would talk about them as being dead in sin. It just didn't make death. It just didn't make sense, this death, to the average onlooker. It looked foolish. And for those in the church who already believe, these are the Corinthian believers that Paul is primarily talking to right now. Of course, he has the outside Corinthian audience around him that don't know Christ, but he's primarily talking to the believers here, the believers. Um, they had it. It's not that they stopped believing. It's not that they stopped believing. It's that the there was a temptation and challenge continue living in the wisdom of the world rather than following the wisdom of Christ on the cross. They wanted to give up, give up the power of the resurrection, the power of the cross, because it was much easier, it was much easier in this culture that looked down on them and looked down on the weakness of the cross to try to blend in a little bit more. And blending in is a difficult temptation, I think, for all of us at different times in our lives. There's moments when we feel strong and we're ready to stand for Jesus no matter what. But there's other moments where it's just easier to blend in. And maybe not, we're not denying what we have in Christ, but we might soften the message a little bit, just so it doesn't sound so foolish to the onlooking world or weak. Like I said, it didn't mean that they stopped believing. These Corinthians, I don't know their hearts. I don't know the situation. I think Paul knew them a little better than we did. Um, but I don't think, I should suspect they didn't stop believing in Jesus. It was just that that temptation to mix a couple, to weaken the message of the gospel. But Paul makes it clear that the message of the cross, along with all of its suffering, is actually the power of God. It is the cross that defeated sin. 
And so why is there such a disparity in reactions? Well, the next verse was going to give us some clues to that. In verse 19, I'm going to read it again. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So Paul here is quoting an Old Testament passage. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. In that, in that verse it says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So David Garland, a commentator, says again, God's actions make the worldly wise look like blundering fools. And Paul's not picking on actual godly wisdom here. We're talking about the wisdom of the world. Um, Paul's not anti-intellectual. Paul actually is quite the intellectual. Paul applies wisdom generically to every form of human wisdom that exalts its own cleverness. But the post, is this, the post is the same. All human schemes that fail to take God into account and, his, and his, the cross will run aground. So the main culprit that we're seeing here, the main deal that we're dealing with here is the same sin that's always been around. The main culprit is pride. Pride. Pride in myself. In the Corinthian culture, that pride came out in intellect, persuasiveness, power, and control. Pride wants power and control and influence and all that goes along with it. And that was what Paul was dealing with here. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So a rhetorical question for you. Where are they now? Where are they now? They are all fools compared to God and his wisdom. If you look through history, many people have looked very strong for a period of time. But it all ends the same way. Their message does not stand forever. Um, their message, we don't remember most of them. All three of these categories, the wise man, the scholar, the philosopher, all three of these categories represent those who are experts in their respective fields and search for truth, at least in this passage, apart from Christ. All those things can be good with a Christ-centered, of course, um, foundation. But what Paul's talking about is those apart from Christ. It doesn't fit into their own intellectual categories when it cannot actually be true. They see themselves as the judge of what is true and what is false. So they reject the truth of the gospel. These people look out to the gospel and say, this just can't be right. It doesn't fit into our paradigm. There's no way this can be true. Second here. I lost something there. I'm back. I'm back. Okay. Matthew 11, verse 25. Those are some of the weaknesses of using a, a laptop. Sometimes it gets a little ahead of you. Um, Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So once again, Paul's appealing to the simplicity of the gospel. Um, this probably made some of the Corinthian onlookers not happy because like I said, the intellect, the power, the ability to persuade were such high values, to, to preach a message that was understandable to little children was almost an insult. But once again, this isn't a call to revert back to the developing intelligence of a child. Christians who think deeply about life are important. In fact, not thinking critically about how culture was affecting them is part of what got them in the mess in this first place. 
Um, I think it's something we need to consider as well. But the bigger idea behind this verse is approaching God's wisdom with the dependency and humility of a child. Not the, not the intellectual capacity of a child, but the dependency and humility of a child. Children need us. Um, there's moments as they grow older, as that I'm seeing with a seven and five-year-old, where they think they need me more, less and less, but there's so many areas, most of the areas, they very much do need us. And so as believers, we also, as we grow up in the Lord and we've been fed God's word, we are able to, we get independence, we, we have grown, we can feed ourselves at many points. However, we, we never want to lose the dependency and humility of that childlike faith rather than our own self-sufficiency. Garland, once again, has a great quote. <clears throat> the wisdom of the cross, by contrast, is the wisdom of the world to come. The wisdom of the world to come. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So here we see again, human wisdom is not the key to knowing God is not the key to knowing God. God has placed all human beings at the same level. We're an intelligent person and a person who might be struggle intellectually. Both have the same opportunities to come to him. The pillar commentary says this, knowing God's acts in history and God's promises to act in the future leads one to honor God as the one true God and to enter into a proper relationship with God based on that trust. The problem for the wise is that when the acts of God in history are so unexpected and so enigmatic that they fail to recognize them as God's acts, it may seem as if God is deliberately blinding them so that they cannot see. But only those who admit that they can see through a glass darkly and are open to God's revelation can truly know God and receive God's offer of salvation. So here's some good news that we see poking through. This is for the person preaching and proclaiming the word, and this includes those who regularly teach it, including those who share our faith with those around us. The effectiveness and spiritual fruit of God's word is not dependent on the eloquence of the teacher. That is great news for us. We, can, we have God's word, and we can, we, can have a, we can struggle through God's word sharing with other people, but it's not dependent on how eloquent our speech is. We are, passing, we are simply passing on a message not repackaging God's words to make it more attractive. Sometimes that's, our, that's, the, that's a little bit of the temptation is to repackage it, to make it look more attractive to the world around us. But the key here, we do want to be more eloquent as we learn it and get more confident. However, the, the, we do not need to repackage the gospel. God's word does not need a rebranding. We need to hear it the way it is. It's offensive, the cross. But that is where the power of the gospel lies. And in that case, God gets all the credit. So think back for a minute. The, the people, the, court, the church in Corinth was struggling because the culture around them valued things that were different than what God valued. Um, sure, God values using our intellect, but these people wanted to use their intellect and their persuasiveness to influence others for their own glory. Um, and in this case, um, they wanted to... The, the church in Corinth would have wanted to use their persuasiveness to get people to understand, but then they would have gotten some of the glory. But in this case, when God does the persuading, when the Holy Spirit does the prompting, when the Holy Spirit does the work, God gets all the credit. And that wasn't interesting to the people that were listening. It wasn't interesting. And early on, 
because God knew, I mean, God, through using Paul and the inspired word through him, knew that the Corinthian people needed to be poked and prodded where it hurt the most. They needed to understand that anything that they accomplished was going to be the, by the power of the gospel and what Jesus did in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Verses 22 and 23. Jews demanded miraculous signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In this case, the Jews were looking for a miraculous deliverance that looked different than Jesus. And the Greeks were looking for wisdom that they did not perceive in Jesus. So the Jews, we know that they were looking, many of the Jews were still looking for that deliverance of the Messiah. Jesus didn't look like that to them. He wasn't the one that came in and took everything over, all their oppressors, and just gave them the power back. Well, to them, that didn't look like the Messiah. To the, to the Gentiles, they were looking for an intellectual wisdom that made them elite and above other people. The gospel didn't give them that either. So in this case, the Jews and the Gentiles, nobody got what they're looking for. God, in his infinite wisdom, chose plan, plan C. He had a different, much wiser way through the cross and the resurrection to give people power and to bring us to real life and, and true life through him, through Jesus. The actual message that Paul preached looked very different from what the Jews and Greeks were looking for, Christ crucified. Jesus' crucified, Jesus' Jesus's crucifix, crucifixion was the God-ordained path for salvation, and it didn't check the boxes that people wanted in their Savior. Jesus was the Savior they needed, but it wasn't the Savior they're looking for that would give them what they thought they needed. Verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And here as we kind of land the plane on this passage, the message of the cross sends some running the other way, and the message of the cross draws some to salvation. So some people are going to hear it. When we deliver it, when, it's, when people hear what it's all about to follow Jesus, and the suffering that Christ went through, and the resurrection, and the suffering that we partake in as well as believers, they run the opposite direction. That does not sound like what they want. And some through the Holy Spirit, it draws us to God, knowing that he is where true life and joy is, is found. We know that happiness and joy and true life is found in him. There's nothing better than life in Christ. But the two people are drawn in different ways to the same message. So what's the difference? God's calling is the difference. God calls both Jews and Greeks through Jesus, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit does the calling. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Um, we know that God, there's no foolishness in God, but that's using hyperbole. The foolishness of God is better than man's best wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. What a comparison. God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. God's weakness is stronger. Of course, God has no, no foolishness or no weakness at all found in him in any way, but the point is clear. Just because man's wisdom does not comprehend the wisdom of God doesn't change whether it's true or not, right? The truth of who God is doesn't, isn't changed by how well the world can accept it and comprehend it. Um, that's not the way it goes. God is the all-wise and all-powerful one who is sovereign over all things, and he has ordained that Christ's death and resurrection will be part of that, that, the path of our salvation, the path. God knew that our wisdom could never save ourselves. He saw the big picture, and out of love, he chose to look foolish. 
when he, act, when he was actually the embodiment of wisdom, he chose to look foolish or at least appear that way because he wanted to have a relationship with the very people who were far from him. So he put himself to that level and to that level of below him just so that we could have a relationship with him and have that ability for the church to be an influence to the world. And for that, we praise the Lord that he would do that for us out of his love and care for us. And so as we think back to that big idea, looking at this whole passage, and especially the context of the power and persuasiveness that the Corinthian church was kind of living under here in the Corinthian culture, we hear this. At first glance, the wisdom of the world may seem to lead towards everything that you want, but in the end, it leads to frustration, discontentment, and death. The wisdom, of God in the, the wisdom of God in the cross, however, may appear foolish, but is actually the saving power of God in Christ that leads to real and true life. So the culture that we live in the middle of does affect us, right? Do we agree with that? It does affect us. We, do, we, we're, we live in the culture, and God placed us there. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. That's why he gave you a church and other fellow Christians to gather with, to encourage each other, and spur each other along. Because he knew that it's not easy. It's not easy to live in the world that doesn't love him. Um, that's, the, what, that's what we do. It's the, it's the air that we breathe is the culture. And there are many ways that we don't see the culture affecting us. And sometimes, I think we can probably, if, we, if I opened up the floor, we could talk about a number of ways that we see our culture affecting us. But I'm just going to name a couple just to get the ball rolling as we think about this passage. Um, one of the themes, overarching themes that we see in our culture is just that idea to look within yourself for truth. Um, now, to be fair, this is something that many of us ignored for a long time, kind of looking within to see who we really are. Um, and it can be a good thing, um, but it can also lead to some problems um, because when we don't look within, um, we didn't look within ourselves to seek to understand how God made us. And so some of us just kind of like just went forward and just became like everybody else in front of us. So it is a good idea to think and Think and give some critical thinking skills to your own life and who you are, how God made you, how he gifted you, how you can serve, serve the world. But the problem comes when we look within ourselves to find all our purpose. And I think that's a major theme in the world that we see is the real truth is found within. Look within yourself to find what really matters. Your truth, whatever truth you think you have is the real truth. It's denying absolute truth and what God has given us. Um, but when we look within to find purpose without God, we're left empty, right? It could be a good thing to look within yourself to learn more about who you are. But when we, when we do that apart from God to find purpose, we're left empty every time. Vocation. Learning what we're good at and how we can earn money is a good thing. We can pay our bills. We can save. We can be generous, buy some things we like, and build up the church with money, right? But when money and working, our vocation... Um, and working our way up the vocational ladder becomes everything, and we find our purpose in that, we're left empty. So many things of the world, so many things that culture tells us is the thing. Fitness and nutrition, a good thing, right? We want to use these temples that God gave us, these bodies, to be strong and do whatever we can to fuel it the right way, exercise our bodies, do what we can. But when, we, when it becomes everything, when that becomes our salvation, we're left empty because that, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Another thing that I notice is influence. Many people desire the power to influence others. Hence, we have a culture of influencers, right? Um, but what are we influencing them to? 
Are we influencing them to ourselves to become like us? Because if we aren't pointing people to Jesus, if our lives aren't gospel-centered, we're left empty again. All these things that have the appearance of good, and we can probably borrow some of these things, and they can be good, um, but when we, when we take God out of the equation, when we don't point towards a gospel-centered life based on what God gave Jesus to do on the cross for us, we're left empty. So a couple of thoughts, a couple of kickstarts and how else for, we can think about it. First, I think we need to think critically about the influence that the culture has on us. Let's engage with the world around us. Let's enjoy God's good gifts, but let's also be aware of the pitfalls and aware of our tendency to pridefully make it all about us rather than God. Uh, know, what, know what the message of the cross is. It's Jesus' death and resurrection. Bypassing the humility of the cross and jumping right to the resurrection paints an incomplete picture of what God did for us in bringing about our justification and sanctification. We need to know the message of the cross. We need it for our own lives. We need it as we share it with others. And we need it as we hopefully are influencing the culture around us to be God-centered. For the believer, look to God's wisdom instead of relying on the wisdom of the world. That's where it's tough. We're fish in the fishbowl. But we need to be discerning critical thinkers who know and can discern when we're kind of going outside the bounds of what God has for us. This one's not easy, and it's going to take discernment and prayer. And there's no easy answer I can tell you from the front. Besides, be in the word, be in the community of Christ's followers, and look to him for, for wisdom. And fourth, the Holy Spirit, opening up the eyes of the unbeliever, is the most important element of the person being saved by the power of the cross. We need to be praying for those who are perishing, sharing the gospel, knowing that it's the Holy Spirit that unlocks their hearts and opens up and softens their hearts to hear the gospel. So keep on sharing, keep on praying for people, and I think the Holy Spirit's going to give us opportunities to share for people to come to know the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word this morning. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his very unique um, life that he had before knowing you and the, the power and intellectual um, strength that he had um, bringing into when he encountered you on the road to Damascus, Lord. We know that he was a changed man who was humbled. Um, he still used his mind, but he also humbly understood who he was before you, Lord. And I pray that we will have a similar posture as we come to you on a daily basis, um, knowing that... Um, you want us to use our minds to critically think about the world. You also want us to humbly um, bow those minds and hearts and desires before you, knowing that you are the sovereign, powerful one, Lord. You are the one that wants to guide us to the life that's truly living, a life that will influence those around us in our families, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, um, who can make a difference in culture and show people what you look like, Lord. Um, I pray that you will encourage our hearts this morning to live for you, um, to love for you, uh, love you more, and to show those around us what you look like. And in your name, amen.